Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 124 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and today on the show, we've got Mr. Artie Isaac joining us. And Artie has a really unique and interesting perspective on life, and we really appreciate him taking the time to tell his story here with us. So, hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment, as usual, to thank all the incredible sponsors and supporters here at Conquering Columbus. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to Molly Ross. Molly Ross is an independent designer who focuses on branding and web design. She wants to connect with you, hear your story, and partner to create something beautiful that will help your business be more successful. If you'd like to check out some of Molly's work or connect with her, you can go to mollyross.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great guest lined up today, Mr. Artie Isaac, and he's the chair of CEO peer groups at Vistage Worldwide, the world's leading chief executive organization, and Artie also leads corporate brainstorming and idea generation programs to develop new products and expand productivity. He holds a professional coach certification from the International Coach Federation, and his continuing education includes the Rao Institute's course in creativity and personal mastery. 
and Jewish Leadership and Literacy from the Wexner Heritage Program. He attended Bexley Public Schools and graduated from the Columbus Academy before heading on to Yale and Columbia to further his education. And Artie has taught creativity at Capital University's Graduate School of Business, Personal Creativity and Innovation at The Ohio State University's Fisher College of Business. And he also taught marketing strategy, ethics, and creativity at the Columbus College of Art and Design. And we are very excited to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Artie. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Josh. How's your day going so far? It's been great. I, uh, on the drive over, I was thinking that now that I'm 58 years old, something that people used to say and I used to think was sort of tiresome, how they're just lucky, they feel glad to be alive, to wake up alive. That's starting to make more sense to me. Uh, it's been a great day. I had breakfast with my beloved, and it's only about 10 a.m., and this afternoon we're uh, driving out to Yellow Springs. So it's a good day. It's a good Sunday. My schedule is different uh, than, uh, than it used to be and maybe different from most people's schedules. I uh, work uh, three and a half weeks straight, all days. I take some time off on Saturday, and, uh, and then I take a week off at the, at the end of the month. And so for me, a Sunday is, uh, is a, it's a work day. Although today, there's not much work. Huh, that's an interesting schedule. So I, that, I, I have trouble turning off on weekends. Right. It's, no. hard, it's hard for me to work five on, two off. I don't understand who set that up, but it, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't obey my sense of uh, momentum and inertia. So yeah, so how do, you, how do you come up with that schedule? What makes you want to change your week, way, your week when you realize that, hey, there's five days on, two days off isn't working? What made you tweak your schedule and, and go to three weeks on, one week off? I'd seen someone else do this, and I, and I had always watched firefighters and the way they uh, are on and on and on and, and then off. And then I faced a, uh, a reality that if, if I don't take a week off, I won't ever stop. I, I enjoy my work. I'm, uh, my work involves writing and, and meeting with people, and I enjoy both those things so much that I just won't stop. And Elisa Isaac, my beloved, and I were just looking at, at our lifestyle and realizing if I don't, if I don't honor weekends uh, as time for relaxation and recovery, we became empty nesters about four years ago, three and a half years ago. And that, that made it possible to really take a week off a, a month. And, um, and so we've been doing that. And it's, it's been great fun. We don't take it to that extreme here at, um, at Mike and I's day job, but I mean, it is very flexible in the sense that like, you know, you come and go as you want. Everybody normally works like a typical eight to five Monday through Friday, but it, what it allowed me to do, I think, is be more creative in the times where I feel most creativity. And then in times when I feel like I'm just kind of slogging through, like leave, go do something else, get a workout in, whatever you got to do, come back. And then I feel like I hit my, my peaks at proper timing, you know, it really fits to who I am as a person versus trying to kind of fit in this old corporate structure that we've been in. Oh, Josh, that's right. And, and when we look at where this comes from, this comes from manufacturing and Henry Ford and the idea of uh, working shifts. And the baby boomers uh, have really uh, grabbed onto that. But the millennials are teaching us that it doesn't make sense to shift gears in such a structured way. And, and I find it, business owners I work with who have manufacturing operations absolutely need shift, uh, a shift orientation. But those of us that work with our, with our minds and, uh, and our, our keyboards, uh, we can sort of work whenever we want. We've kind of gone off on a tangent, so we'll come back to the, to the creativity okay. and, the, and the different lifestyle things here a little bit later. But some places that we like, or like place that we like to start is back in the beginning and maybe talk about your childhood and your upbringing and we sure. can make our way through Columbus Academy and Yale and go from there. 
Glad to. I'll try to give you just the two-minute version. I uh, grew up in Columbus, uh, fourth of four children, uh, only boy, born late in the birth order and uh, unexpected, So, uh, but doted upon. Uh, they, uh, they loved me fiercely, went to uh, Bexley Public Schools early on, and then transferred to the Columbus Academy when it was all boys. From there to, to Yale University, uh, a degree in English, and to New York, uh, worked in public relations and investor relations for several years, then to Columbia Business School uh, in New York, then, then back into, into business in New York and, and came to Columbus. Did, did, I, did I zip out of my childhood too quickly? Did you want to? No, no, that was good. I guess usually when I, when I go through there, one question that I'll go back and sure. ask is just like throughout that path, I mean, you, you, going up and finishing your MBA at Columbia, like you've achieved a lot of amazing things just in that portion of your life. So one thing that I'm curious to hear about is as you were going through that, was there something that was driving you in particular? Were you just kind of enjoying the journey, passionate about learning? Did you have an end goal in mind as you went through that path? And what were your no, siblings yeah. doing? I'm, okay, so uh, I, I'm not a planful person. I have uh, ethics and morals that keep me somewhere in the, in the proper lane, but, I, uh, but I, don't, I don't look out very far. I'm more improvisational, more uh, in the moment. I have to say that my story is not... Uh, there, there are those who would, who would disagree and say that there's achievement there, but the achievement uh, manifest is not messing it up. Uh, I was born with an enormous amount of privilege. Uh, I, uh, the, the, the wind always filled my sails. And so as long as I didn't uh, do something boneheaded, and I did, I did several boneheaded things, but as long as I didn't do too many bigger boneheaded things, I just, I just kept going. And I am, have only recently become aware just how, uh, how much privilege has played a role in that, uh, in that journey. It's, uh, it's a little bit ridiculous, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful. You asked about my siblings. They are role models to me. Uh, uh, one is deceased, uh, two survive. And they are in various forms of retirement, uh, serving as uh, volunteers in their communities, uh, uh, happy fam families. And they're putting to work uh, for the public good uh, skills they developed in professional careers uh, that were honorable and uh, and, you know, they're my big sisters, so I, I, I look up to them and I, um, I increasingly realize uh, what their achievements have been. So you get through Columbia. When do you start your first company, Young Isaac? Well, so I didn't start Young Isaac. I, I called myself the refounder, a refounder. Uh, it was already founded by Brooks Young. It was called Brooks Young Communications back in the, uh, uh, let me get my decades right, in the 80s. Uh, even maybe earlier. Uh, he came out of Ohio State and he, he founded a, an ad agency. I came to town uh, in 1990 and uh, bought his firm with him from a corporate owner. And we proceeded to sort of run it, I would say, or unrun it for, I was there for 18 years. And um, I, I, I don't think I've ever started, well, I, Rob Emrich, uh, Ohio State grad, uh, good friend of mine, um, now an entrepreneur out in, in California. He and I started a company called SpeakerSite. We became the world's lar largest social network for public speakers. It died about a year before we killed it. Uh, it wasn't, we, could, we never figured out how to monetize it. But we learned a lot, had a great, a great deal of fun. That's probably the only company I've really ever started. I helped a little in the starting of Angie's List, uh, but, uh, but that was really the work of Bill Osterley and, and his board and Angie. Hicks. 
And then Vistage, I, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a 1099 subcontractor. I'm, I'm really a freelancer. And that's, that's really my proper role on this planet. I, there's a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie, uh, in which he describes um, being a, uh, a corporate fool and surviving with grace. And, uh, and how those of us that, some of us are, we're not of the hairball, we're not of the entity itself, because a company is just a series of threads, a series of agreements. We orbit around this. We need it, the mass uh, for gravity, but, uh, but I really am, at my heart, um, in business, a loner. And then when you finish your MBA, and you, whether you start like, buying that first company, like what did that look like to you internally? Did you have, again, I know you said you've always kind of just lived in the moment, so is that, again, just another process of where you were enjoying the journey and you weren't really doing things with long-term intentions, just kind of short-term execution and... What made you want to get into the ad agency in the, in the first place? Was it attractive business to you? Or? It was. I, I'd been in New York City and working in public relations and, and helping to, to start up a small division of a PR firm uh, that did some advertising. And I, and I had the opportunity to do some copywriting and creative, uh, creative work, and I really liked that. And uh, to be honest, uh, people encouraged me. I've, I've always listened to what other people thought I should be doing. I'm here today because you thought I should be here, not because I thought, you know, and I'm grateful to people who call me up and say, we think you ought to do this. Uh, the, world, the world knows what we are capable of if we are uh, visible. And, uh, and so, so Henry Hauser, my, uh, my uh, stockbroker, my, my registered representative out there in the world who I've known since high school, said, come back and meet Brooks Young, and, uh, and, and we think you ought to do this. To be fair, Mel Schottenstein, uh, a titan uh, in those days, uh, also called and wanted to recruit his son Eric's friends back to town. And Eric and I had gone to, to high school together and we're friends. And so his father, you know, wanting to make, his father said, I, I always like this, he, when, he, when he told me why he was calling me, he said, uh, we can measure the value and the growth of our hometown based on whether or not our children choose it as a place to live and and raise their families, and uh, and that stuck with me. I think that's I think that's really all we're trying to do here is create this as a place our kids would say, "That's a nice place. I could live there." It's funny that you that you put it that way because, so I, I come from San Diego, California. Oh, great! Growing up, uh huh. Um, and people ask that question to me all the time. Wait, what are you doing here? But I think it was just that. It was just that I came here and I'm like, this is a really great place. Like, I love everything about it I'm, so I've, I'm stuck here um, I just kind of put you know grew roots here uh, because of the community and the way that Columbus um, treats people and and definitely the growth that I see coming forward but uh, from there so you come back to Columbus so we treat some people better than others there's an entire group mm -hmm. of people that are disenfranchised uh, without work without pro without proper uh, service without without postal service I mean we've got a we've got a group of people that really are not uh, being tended to. For me, I'm being catered to very well. That's true. That's true. It's good to point that out as well. I mean, you know, I have... And I don't do... I'm sorry, Mike. I don't do that to create guilt no. or to say you have to fix it. But we always need to be aware that our work is far, far from finished. If my, if my ancestors who immigrated to this country saw the way I live, they would say, thank God, uh, we must have cured poverty. We must have... Everybody must be, must be clothed. We must have rights. People must not fear to walk in the streets since you live that way. And, and only spending, you know, the last 15 minutes with you, the, I know that you probably wouldn't uh, accept credit for this because you seem like an extremely humble person, but it takes 
a unique sense of intelligence to be introspective and I think realize that and then look back and realize that, you know, I mean, even when people come to you and they say, hey, this is what I think that you should do, I think it takes a unique level of intelligence to sit back and say, yes, I think I could be open to this. You know, I think some people have their blinders on at some points and they're not really able to open their horizons to other perspectives. So it's interesting to hear how your path has kind of played out. Would you would you disagree with that or would you agree? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to take credit because people give me credit for this and they say, oh, now you're being humble. No, I'm not being humble. I, uh, I simply trust the perspective of those around me. I mean, I, I'm surrounded by really smart, really ambitious, earnest, caring, ethical people. And when they say to me, hey, you ought to try doing this, or you ought to, you ought to be aware of this aspect of your life, who am I not to listen? I, I'm, I am more confident in what others, because of the people around me, what others are telling me that perhaps than I am of my own. So my own thoughts. And, and the more I say that, the more people say, well, that's really courageous. Say, no, 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 it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, self-doubt. And then people say, oh, you're so vulnerable. I wish I could be that brave. And, no, no, it's really just, I'm just, I'm just a goober, you know, <laughs> trying, trying to figure this out. Trying to figure this out. And I'm taking, I'm taking, go figure, I'm taking advice. It all boils down to the goober. And I, yeah, well, that's hey, all it is. But I think that, you know, there's kind of a, in that, idea that hey some of the most successful people in the world do just what you just you know exactly what you just said they hire good people around them they bring in the best people the smartest people they can and they listen to them well, and not even hire like i guess are you i was curious to hear were you intentional about the people you surround yourself with or were because you grew up in columbus academy and you went to um very acclaimed and prestigious schools like were you just fortunate to be surrounded by amazing friends and you kind of built your relationships there yes uh, access to intelligent people is one of my privileges I didn't earn, I mean, listen, I, I could have repelled people, and I'm sure I have, uh, and I could have picked bad friends, and, and maybe from time to time I, I picked people that uh, I didn't serve or who didn't serve me. Uh, but generally, one of, the, one of the most overlooked privileges in this life is, holy cow, I was always surrounded by nutritious people. Generally, they did nutritious things. Generally. Generally, yeah. So, so then we'll get back on the timeline path now, too. I like these tangents, though. I feel like we're getting a deep look into... Uh, I live on tangent. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're definitely living today, then. Okay. Uh, so we. So how long... What does the timeline look like for the ad agency? And then at what point do you decide that um, it's time to leave there? Or do you get encouragement from somebody else to kind of take <laughs> a new path? I got encouragement, for, I guess, from Alan Greenspan uh, and, the, and the economy. Uh, I was at... Young Isaac for uh, 18 years, and and the, the team there did wonderful work. They were poorly managed when I was their manager. Uh, they were unmanaged. I mean, frankly, uh, and uh, but we did we did we had moments of brilliance. And about three years before the end, uh, I, I was getting worn out, and I was enjoying my teaching at Capital and at uh, at Ohio State more more than I was enjoying uh, pretending to run a business. I, I, I was running it like a college. Uh, you know, a small uh, collegial environment. I, uh, I found that in, in uh, 2008 that uh, the economy was entering what would, would, would be for me my third recession in business. And I went home and I said to Elisa, you know, we're entering a recession. She said, fine, we know what to do. You have to put money in to maintain and keep your powder dry and, uh, and come out on the other end with your team. And I said to her, you know, I don't have any uh, ambition to own my company. And she said, well, then it doesn't make sense to put $1 in. And, and I said, well, that's right. So that was a Monday. 
And, and I have to say, I'd just come from my 25th college reunion where they had all said, what are you doing? Uh, you're not doing the most important work of your career. And uh, I hadn't been back there in 25 years because I was afraid of those people. They were so, they were so bright. Uh, but I went back for my 25th reunion. They said, do, do better work. And they also said that I'd been in this play. So here's a tangent for you. They said, they, they remembered a play I'd been in. I was in um, Our Town by Thornton Wilder, the play about everything, avant-garde play from long ago, most produced play in America. And I'd done that in college, and I thought I'd done a poor job. My father had come out with my mother to, to see one of the performances, and after the curtain, he, he stepped up to me, and he, he put his hands out as if to settle me, and he said, um, don't act. And I thought, you know, dude, I know, I know what you're, I know what you're saying. I, I really understand. I had, I had been uh, not studiously learning my lines. I felt I'd done a really poor job. And so I, I never pursued acting. But I did make an oath to myself that I would do that play twice more, once in middle age and once in late. So 25 years in, everyone in the, this reunion said, uh, you know, you're, uh, you did a really great job. And they, and they talked about the play. And one of them was a theater critic for a major daily. And oh no, this was, this was uh, a, a really uh, pure presentation of our town. I played the stage manager, which is a omniscient uh, narrator. One person came up to me at the very end uh, her name is Heidi Smith. She comes from Texas, and she lets me, she lets me tell the story. And I said uh, hello to her, and she said, I owe you my thanks. And I said, well, who are you? She said, I'm Heidi Smith from Texas. Um, I said, why do you owe me thanks? She said, you were in our town. I said, I was. And she said, you know, I owe you my thanks because um, when my three-and-a-half-year-old son died, I had no regrets. I, I told her that I was sorry, she said, uh, and I, that's not why I'm saying it, she said, uh, when he jumped in the pool and he said, Mama, watch me, I watched him. I didn't look through a viewfinder, I, I watched him. And it was because of what you said in that play. I'd forgotten a lot of what the play was about. I came home, I reproduced it at the same time I closed my business. I uh, sold the business to people to my site, and I, I realized I wasn't doing the most important work of my career. So that was 10 years ago. Uh, that I sold the business, sold it, closed it, looked like arson, but it was, it, I, in fact, that was a Monday when I decided to not continue. Tuesday, I told my uh, leadership team, Wednesday, we closed the company. Thursday, uh, we lost most of our clients, and Friday, someone bought it. It was not a, an adult transaction. It was a childlike transaction, which I, uh, I don't regret. So things turned quickly there, and you, you mentioned at one point about uh, your dad coming up to you after the play, and yeah. it seemed like that was, that's a really intense comment that it sounds like you kind of uh, look back on and you think about pretty deeply. Was that a common theme growing up through your childhood? Was he kind of just the person who would tell you, tell you straight exactly how it was? No. In fact, it was, it was, he only gave me three pieces of advice in his entire life and uh, our life together. That, there were just three, and that was one of them. And I called my mother from the, from the reunion to say, what did Dad mean? Because he had long predeceased that reunion. And I, I said, what did he mean when he said, don't act? She said, oh, he thought you were great. He was afraid it was an unsustainable life economically. And I thought, oh, oh, I, I misheard that. Uh, no, my father didn't give me a lot of advice. The only other advice he gave me was to take Latin uh, we argued over it. In fact, we came to fisticuffs, and I know you guys are wrestlers. Um, <laughs> my father and I were not. 
Uh, these are two guys who should not uh, have uh, fallen to this sort of uh, pastime. And then uh, he, uh, he suggested uh, to one of his friends, but I, in, within earshot of me, that I should, I should go to business school. Other than that, my father never gave me advice. He didn't think it was his right. He, uh, he didn't feel like, uh, he thought it was my life I was living. And I, and I have to say that as we raise our kids, uh, the only advice I think I've given them over, uh, the only advice I ever regret giving them is the advice I've given them. Um, every time I haven't given them advice, they've done the right thing. Do you think, because that's an interesting uh, comment, I mean, everything that we're talking about is really interesting, but in particular, I, I think I sometimes look and try to look to the future and think if I have children, like what, what will I do to try to make sure that they take a path that's not something that I've paved out for them, but they don't take the wrong path, you know? And it sounds like... Everyone takes the wrong path. And, and it's the just, right, there is no wrong path. There is no wrong path. There is no mistake. There's, there's nowhere to go. There's no one to see. There's nothing to do when you get there. there this, this idea that we have to take the right path is, I mean, we have to not hurt other people. We have to know that no means no. We have to know that stop means stop. We have to, we have to respect other people. Other than that, have at it. Do, do, do some good. Well, even how do you instill that aspect, that, that no means no and stop means stop. I mean, and let's just take it to maybe an extreme example. So it's like um, getting involved with drugs or doing something that's very intense in life and, and can hurt other people in an indirect way, but it's uh, almost like a selfish act internally. You know, I, I believe, so there, there are these studies that show that uh, identical twins separated at birth and raised in different families, uh, even when they're raised in very different families under very different circumstances and different parenting and different economics and socio uh, aspects, um, they, they end up the same time and time again. I believe that uh, our kids were molded uh, over a pizza at Rubino's Pizzeria when Elisa and I looked at each other and fell in love. 99% uh, of who we are, more than that, is the result of our genetics. And, and, you know, we really, as a society, want to believe that what we do uh, helps shape our children. I'm just not a big believer in that. So that's an interesting topic again, is, uh, and I feel like I keep saying that, but 99. So that would mean that, you know, very, very small percentage of what who we are comes from our environment, and it's more a result of the, the person that we are interacting with that environment then? Yes. I mean, the opportunities are in the environment, although the opportunities are also, I mean, that our kids grew up in, in a house filled with books, a house where the, the parents love one another, and, uh, and uh, we live a, an ethic called Shalom Bayat, uh, which in Hebrew means a peaceful home. Those choices were just foisted upon them. But the opportunities that have been placed in front of them over and over and over again, uh, and the ones they embrace and the ones they, uh, uh, they squander, these are, these are their choices. So the environment plays a huge role, uh, but not in making them who they are. So all we did, uh, if you're looking for parenting advice and, and you've come absolutely to the wrong place, because I, I believe that each of us is just inventing new ways to, to send our kids into therapy, we, we, we told our kids, start anything, try anything. Uh, we have an unlimited budget for education. Uh, if you want to take lessons in this or that, go ahead. You don't, have to, you don't have to finish. You can quit whenever you want. And that's very counter-cultural for people who really want to teach their kids to stick in there, and you made this commitment. But I thought if they made a commitment that they didn't like, it might teach them not to try new things. So we wanted our kids to sample the world. And they have been great samplers. 
I, I, I'm hesitant to say more about them just because their stories are not mine to tell, uh, but they are um, they're good people. And, and then the last question on that topic, did you ever quit anything in front of them or did they watch you um, pursue things with a full passion and then follow through with them? Because I almost think that sometimes you'll reflect on, you, if you have that opportunity and that freedom to let go, but you see someone that you admire and that you look up to that doesn't let go, internally you're gonna be driven to not make that happen. They've, yeah, they, they've seen me quit things. They've seen me quit things I love, and they've seen me quit things I, I wasn't succeeding at. Uh, when I, when I uh, stepped away from uh, Young Isaac, the advertising agency, it was a, a, a capitulation. A, I, I waved a white flag, and I was very honest with them about, about how it happened, although it happened so fast that uh, we were all finding out exactly what was happening as it was happening. But they saw me step away from the college classroom. Uh, a peak experience teaching. Uh, I belong on, uh, I think, um, one of the places I belong is a college campus, but I, um, I, they saw me leave something I love doing. No, our, our kids have, but they've also seen me commit to, uh, to their mother. Uh, Elise and I have this philosophy that, and we've said this to them, that marriage is not a lifetime commitment. It's, it's a daily commitment. And, um, and each day we have these choices, and each day we we you know we we reenact our vows, not not in a in a formal uh, way, but uh, in in the way we live. So so they've they've seen me not change things at all and commit fiercely, and they've seen me uh, be very fickle and slippery around uh, other commitments. So young Isaac ends, and you shut that down. Um, you said that was ten years ago today. Or well, ten years ago, ago, April Fool's Day. So it's a little bit. Uh, uh, Ten years, ten years and several months. And then, what do the next steps look like for you? Do you take time off to no. self-reflect? Or? No, I, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm only now learning how to self-reflect. Uh, I was always afraid to self-reflect. I, I had a coach, Steve Anderson, uh, local coach here, uh, Integrated Leadership Systems, great guy. He uh, he told me that I should self-reflect, and I said, "How do I do that?" He said, "Well, everybody should sit for a half an hour a day in a comfy chair in a quiet place with a pad of paper on their lap and a pencil in their hand." Uh, without uh, any distractions, no phone, no dog, you're not alone if you're with your dog, uh, and uh, spend a half an hour. And I came back to him for my next meeting, and, and this is all around that time, so this isn't still in the chronology. And, and, and he, he said, you do it? I said, oh, no. He said, well, do that. I really, I really intend for you to do that. And I said, okay. And I came back for my next appointment. He said, did you do it? I said, no. He said, well, he said why, why didn't you do it? Um, and I said, you know, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to do it. He said, what are you afraid of? I said, I'm afraid to be alone. He said, why? I'm afraid to be alone because I'm afraid that if I'm alone, no one will be there. And he laughed in a generous sort of way. And he said, I assure you someone will be there. You're here with me now. Uh, but I was, I was afraid. I thought self-reflection and, and stopping forward motion would, uh, would jeopardize things. Not in an intellectual way, just, uh, just in a, a non-self-reflective way. But I, but I encourage so many people to do that. I encourage the two of you to do that. A comfy chair, quiet place, pad of paper on your lap, pencil in your hand, no interruptions, no distractions, no phone, no dog. You're not alone with your dog. I say this a lot to a lot of people, uh, half an hour a day. That's what, that's what great people do. I'm not even sure what I'd write. Uh, it'd be right. But yeah, that's, that's you will, right. Uh, Mike, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You will ask yourself the questions that the world is not interested in asking you. Why am I here? What am I doing? What's important to me? What do I got to get done? The world doesn't care if you ever answer those questions. The world only wants you to consume. Mm-hmm. We live in a consumer society, and that's what it means. We want you to consume something. Yeah. Consume this podcast. 
right? That's true. Support yeah. our sponsors, right? This is, we, we live, and I, I'm not here to cast dispersions at a consumer uh, society. Uh, that will be done by our grandchildren. I think I would write too much. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but you about... don't know. But you don't know. Yeah, so I, I, I strongly recommend that. So, you, but, but your question was something about what happened at that time and where do I go? So, I, so I, it took me a while to, to shut down and, uh, the aftermath of, of a business. Uh, there were leases. There were uh, obligations. And uh, the employees, all, most, almost everyone got a job with the new entity that bought us, and I was grateful to them for doing that. And I started, I just sort of went home and did marketing plans and, and did creativity uh, workshops. The creativity workshop, a banker named Lee Lemke from Huntington National Bank uh, approached me at a lunch and he said, would you, would you help the bank? We're entering in a recession. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of consolidation in banking. We need help being creative. We've told all of our vendors to help us be creative. And our vendors are coming to us, he said at the bank. They're coming to us with very creative ideas. And because we're a bank, we tell them no. And I said, oh, he said, right. So could you, would you sit on our side of the table and tell them yes? And I said, well, Lee, I mean, that's really, that sounds like easy work, but that's not what I do. He said, I think you could do it. And he ended up being the best manager I ever had. He was my client, but he was my manager. And we ran brainstorms. And I, 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 we developed uh, products for uh, Huntington National Bank. And uh, it was very, it, li it lifted my, uh, my boat. And I, uh, so I started doing creativity workshops and, and brainstorm sessions for a variety of companies and enterprises. And I did that for about oh, three to five years, basically taking what I'd, what I'd learned by teaching at Ohio State, a course in creativity. And then, uh, and then I, Vistage reached out to me and said, you know, you used to be in another peer. I was in a peer group when I was in my business, and I really loved it. And they let me run that peer group year after year, and I really enjoyed that. And uh, Vistage said, you should, you should run uh, peer groups. And so, uh, and so I've been doing that for... Uh, seven and a half years. And so when you're running these peer groups at Vistage, uh, what I'm interested in is kind of what, it, what does it look like? Um, is there a typical structure to them or is everyone different and unique? Uh, both, yes. So each group is different uh, from each other. Each group is different from itself month to month because things change, topics change. Uh, sometimes the roster changes, but generally the members know when they come to this day, each month, it's a better part of a day, full day. They know who's going to be around the table, and they know what we will talk about are the top 5% and bottom 5% of life, the things they can't run past their beloved, their, their CPA, their, their leadership team, their, their buddies. Uh, there are topics that are so good and topics that are so scary or bad that there's no place to talk about them. That's what we talk about, highly confidential peer group. So... Nobody has an ax to grind. They just give their best advice to each other and say, good luck, let us know what happens. And they come back the next month and they're, it's sort of like everyone's on an airplane. You know, if you've ever been on an airplane and the plane dips and you suddenly confide in your seatmate, this is like that airplane ride, uh, but it happens every month. It's a full day and it's the same seatmate. It, it is a reminder that uh, humans crave community and uh, we have in the modern age said that uh, vulnerability is suddenly to be accepting or, and, to, and to be accepted, and, uh, and, and they're doing that in these groups. This is a safe, 
I hesitate to say a safe place because so many people ridicule that phrase, but it, it's a safe place. I'll just say this. It's an it's a alternative to isolation. When people are isolated, when leaders are isolated, they have a higher potential for becoming buffoons. We see this on the national stage. We see this in companies. We see it all over the place. People who think they have no peers end up lacking self-awareness and they end up with overwhelming self-confidence. And they either become great artists or buffoons. And uh, I'm, I'm working to, I don't know, prevent buffoonery, though I exhibit it mightily. And you're sitting with these exceptional people who have achieved things at all levels, but you're getting the ability to see inside of their mind and their lives on the margin that most people never awesome. get to see. Oh my, it's, uh, it is the privilege of a lifetime. I'm very grateful to these, uh, these members of these peer groups. They're just so relieved to have a place to, to, to say what they're thinking. So for, here's a very tiny technical example. Someone comes to me and says, uh, uh, or they say to the group, I, I face this great challenge. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm stuck, and I, and I don't know what to do. And someone says, well, what do you think you ought to do? And they say, I don't know. That's why I'm bringing up the, this, this question. And then somebody, I'll say it, or somebody in the group will say, well, what do you think you ought to do? W what would you do if you, if you knew what you were going to do? It's a, like the stupidest question. What would you do if, if you knew? What would you do if you, if you knew what you were going to do? It's a, it's a completely ridiculous question. And the person always knows. What I love about it is that one of our college coaches used to say to, say to us, he said, you always, everybody always knows the right decision to make. It's just sometimes they don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to dive deep enough, or they just for some reason don't think they should know the right answer, so they ignore yes. it inside of themselves. And as you've learned in wrestling, there's muscle memory around us. Mm -hmm. We know when it is that we're going to raise the flag and say, I don't know. And, and we have set that boundary. That fence is built way too close in. These the, People... We're all sophomores at the senior dance, right? That never changes. What we learned in those moments, it stays with us. And so someone with 20 years of experience might still self-inhibit because they think of themselves as still starting out. And so on that margin, like that was one theme that you just mentioned. Are there other themes that you see across these individuals, whether it's positive or negative, that you know, might be things that you look back and say, yes, this is what makes these people great, or this is where these people really struggle on, on a uh, consistent, um, across-the-board perspective? Oh, well, I, uh, I, I can tell that they care. Uh, you know, CEOs the, the, the have, a, have a sort of a national reputation. The title is a national reputation. But what, the, what these really are are business owners, whether they uh, own all the stock or they just own a little bit or they, or they operate uh, with a proprietary interest. These folks lose sleep over their employees and the lives uh, that are funded by the employees' work in the company. And, the, and the, the lives are beyond, they realize the multiplier effect of their decisions, that there are um, families behind these employees, and there are communities, and there are vendors and their families, and there are customers and their vendor and their, their, their families. The multiplying effect of sitting at this desk, at the desk where these, these business owners sit, it's awesome. It is, uh, and by awesome, I mean uh, fearsome. And, and they, they really do care. There are, there are people who are purely greedy in this world. I don't, I don't work with them. I have the opportunity to choose who I work with, and I'm really grateful for that. Are there any particular moments that stick out to you over the last 10 years that you've been doing this, or maybe it was like seven to eight that you mentioned because you spent some time doing other workshops, um, that 
you look back on and you say, man, that was an amazing breakthrough for this individual. And, and again, I know these are highly confidential, yeah. so there's no need to... You know, it happens so often. It happens in every meeting. Uh, it happens sometimes I can't see it. I mean, I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the arbiter of magic moments. So I don't know when so, someone who's not processing an issue and just observing someone else process an issue can come to me months later and say, this made all the difference. And I thought, oh, I, I, that wasn't even about you. But, but everything is about everybody. It, it happens all the time. I, I will say that uh, what I'm learning is to say less. Uh, I've learned to start as a swim coach and to end up like a lifeguard. It is my job to, uh, to meditate on the phrase that I am no one, that I am nobody. And uh, they're all adults. They know how to chicken fight in the pool. They know what they're doing. I am learning uh, to not know. I am learning to back up. I'm learning to be more quiet. And it's difficult. Yeah, and I, I think it's something that I personally, so in a completely different realm, in, in actual you know, business orientation, any time of day, I, I struggle with talking too much um, in the sense that, you know, even when it's something that I really don't know enough about to be providing that perspective on, I probably talk too much. I, don't, I need to pause more and listen. So, you know, is there any sort of perspective there for you on, on pausing and stepping back more and, and, and what you can do to help with that process? Yes. Uh, partly it's uh, waiting to make sure I know you're finished, right? Because if I interrupt you, I'll never find out what it is you were about to say. I, so some of my training was at the Gestalt Institute in Cleveland, uh, where I got my coaching uh, training and certification. And uh, in, the, in the interview for the program, I learned something. Uh, I was talking to uh, one of the faculty members there, and she said, um, let me just give you this advice, because she heard me talking too much in the interview. She said, uh, write down the word wait, W-A-I-T, uh, at the top of the piece of paper. And, uh, and she says, it's not the word wait, though it can be looked at that way. It's, uh, it's an acronym. It stands for why am I talking? And so one, one thing I do is I, I, I will place the word wait with periods after each letter at the top of my note-taking page, and I will ask myself, and I'm asking myself even right now in this very moment, why am I talking? So I think the tough part there is, and I say this quote-unquote, the smarter that I feel like I get, the more I want to step in and, and talk more and more and try to answer people's questions. Like you almost feel this... Um, it's, I think it's rooted in probably insecurities or just your ability to try to show other people that you have some sort of knowledge. You know, I mean, like, when we, when, the smarter you get, the, realize, the more you realize how not smart you are, but at the same time, you want to express the, the little things you do know. So as you're dealing with extremely high-level people and you are kind of the person who's been managing these groups for several years, there's got to be a part of you that thinks, like, I know the right question to ask here, but that, you, you still hold that back and you step back and you ask, you let them finish. Um, where do you draw the line and say, you know, I, now it's time to facilitate this forward? Do you just continue to, like you, you talk about asking the right questions or a particular set of tools that you pull from? Or? Well, I, I, I'm drawing the line in the wrong place. I'm still not uh, fully evolved. I'm still not mature enough to know when to hold back. Uh, I speak far too often. Uh, I think my next question is far too brilliant. It is not. One of my teachers, Joe Fassler, said he was quoting someone else. He said that uh, judgment renders us un unconscious. 
And I find all too often uh, I come to certain judgments like, oh, I should ask this question, or this person needs this help from me. That's a judgment. It's not a fact, it's an opinion. And it renders me unconscious, unconscious in that I'm no longer listening, I'm no longer hearing what they're saying. And so I, I meditate on the, while we're together, even, even in this moment, I meditate on the very thought that judgment renders me unconscious. I, I, I have good news for you. I mean, you, the, the sentiment you just described, Josh, is, is absolutely, it's right. The good news is over time, so early in our careers, we are rewarded for knowing things and being quick-witted and, uh, and fast with the fix. But as we get older, we get uh, more, um, we get rewarded for not knowing, for surrounding us ourselves with people who we can ask to do things and to, and to develop them. So, so you ask for like, what tool is there? Jim Alampi, uh, uh, someone I've met through Vistage, he says that whenever one of his lieutenants, he was running a billion dollar company, whenever his lieutenants would come to him and ask, what do I do? He would always say the seven magic words. I don't know, what do you think? I think you can get a long way just asking people, I don't know, what do you think? And when they say, I don't know, then you say, well, what would it be if you did know? It's incredible. People just want permission to come to their own conclusions. And, and let me just say that there, there are uh, gender and age and all sorts of intersectionality around this, uh, the way men and the way women and the way uh, all of us along every spectrum uh, deal with this issue is very different. So, so watch out as you are uh, leaping uh, to rescue people with your brilliance, which is worthy, I, I do believe. Take a close look at who you're talking to. And, uh, and ask yourself, am I really the expert or does this person have internal knowledge that I, re that I should be levering instead of my own good interests and good intentions? So moving forward, you mentioned earlier when we first showed up, you know, a possible move here soon or a definite move. And what does the future look like for you? Like, what are your goals moving <laughs> forward? I have, uh, I'm not a planner. And so uh, I'm very uh, unaware of what this move looks like. So I'm uh, in three or four months, uh, end of this 2018, uh, Elise and I will move to Yellow Springs, Ohio. And it's only an hour away, it's 50, 50 minutes away, and I'm, I plan to get a self-driving car, I'm waiting right now for them to deliver. And, uh, and I believe that, uh, that life won't change. One of my members, Stuart Hunter, you've met Stuart Hunter, he, uh, he was on uh, Conquering Columbus, he's a member in one of my groups, and he and I were sitting just a, a week or so ago, uh, late one evening at a retreat, and he said, I think this will change your life. I think this is a conceptual move, not just a geographic move, and you have no idea how, how much this will change your life. And all my life, when someone, uh, especially someone, you know, Stuart's a member of a group, in some ways you could call him a client, that would have instilled fear in me. And I, I would have said, no, 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 nothing, nothing changes here, nothing changes here, uh, business as usual. But my reaction with him was, gosh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, right? So I, uh, I've, I've given up trying to um, forecast the future in one way. In another way, I, you know, I'm a student of W. Edwards Deming, the quality guru who talks about how management is nothing more, well, management is many, many things, but management is prediction. Management is trying to predict what will happen if we take this, this, this move. And so, so, okay, so you asked an honest question and I gave you a crazy answer. Uh, life will be uh, in a small town uh, that's very accepting and uh, generous and welcoming of our friends, and uh, we are appreciative of that. 
it will be uh, on a little little bit bigger piece of land, cup, uh, two-thirds of an acre, uh, lots of garden space, a little area for meditation, a bocce court. Come on over. Let's play bocce. And uh, I, think, I think there will be more writing. Uh, I'll still come into Columbus, I, I forecast, eight to 12 times a month. Uh, but a lot of work these days can be done by video conference. More and more people are saying, yes, let's do that. And I, I believe I'm entering the final third of life. Any mathematician would, would say, oh, dude, you're well into that. And so I am, I'm looking for the environment for that. Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, said there are three marriages, ideally with the same person, sex, parenthood, and companionship. Our first phase was in New York, and our second phase was surely in Bexley in Columbus, Ohio, for which we were most grateful. And uh, this companionship phase in, in Yellow Springs, uh, it's just perfect. It, it looks like the perfect move. And maybe even a deeper look into, you know, you outside of the Vistage, Vistage groups and outside of the professional environment, like when you have downtime or you look to kind of uh, get away mentally or physically, like what does that look like for you? Where do you go? Do you read books? Do you spend time writing? I am the only one in my family who's not, uh, not a, uh, a prolific reader. Uh, our kids and, and Elisa, everybody reads a lot. I don't read that much. I, I, uh, I find I don't have uh, the attention span for it. What I've been doing for about the past 10 years is going out into nature. And so uh, Yellow Springs speaks to me because I think I can do it on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But, but for the past 10 years, uh, I've been going to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I've spent 22 nights below the rim. I've scheduled two nights for next month. And uh, I am finding that uh, if I am away from technology and back into the original technology of, of Mother Nature, uh, this speaks to me uh, a lot. I meditate. I've meditated for 43 years since I was 15. So for me, uh, downtime, it looks like meditation twice a day. I, I miss I miss many sessions. Sometimes for years in a row I miss them, but, um, but lately I've been meditating. Uh, so it looks like meditation. I go to bed early. I wake up early. I, I've been riding my bike. I got one of Stuart Hunter's roll bikes, and I, uh, that sounds like a plug. Uh, hi, Stuart. And uh, I, uh, I rode my bike this morning in the darkness of Bexley and really like it. I am, I, I've become an introvert. I guess I always was one, but I played the away game for so long because I was trained to be an extrovert, but I am an introvert. I mean, we're sitting here, home listeners don't see what we're seeing, but both these young men are staring at me and I'm looking down at the desk the entire time. You know, I, I, uh, I live a highly amplified introvert's life. And uh, so I think uh, what downtime is increasingly looking like uh, is uh, uh, enacting the life of an introvert. Do you get the opportunity to see, you mentioned your children, have they moved to you know, their own courses of life? Like, are they still in Ohio? Or? Uh, you know, I, uh, I learned long ago that uh, other people's stories are not mine to tell, and I honor that you asked the question. And, I, and there, there's little story, I mean, other than my own story, my kids' stories uh, and Elisa's story, these are the most fascinating stories to me. But, but, I, but I'd rather not say, I would, I would just say this, uh, they are availing themselves of all the opportunities of education, and, and work. Uh, they have uh, uh, very uh, creatively driven work ethics. Uh, and uh, and I'm, 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 I'm very optimistic and, um, and, I, and they are role models. Uh, a lot of what I've said today 
is learning from both of them. Uh, my mentors, uh, though they don't want this role, this is not, you know, they just want to be my kids, and sometimes not even that, right, you know. Um, but they, uh, they are, they're role models for me in many ways, and I'm learning uh, mightily from them. And Artie, I think that's a, a good place to kind of pivot towards our last question of the show here on Concord Columbus. It's, it's centered around the theme of our show, and we kind of like to just not tell you too much about it, but the phrase is live uncomfortably. And what do you think of when you hear that phrase, and how do you apply it to your life and career? Well, I, I think that uh, I seek, I have always sought comfort in knowing. I've always sought comfort in knowing uh, what will happen. Uh, you know, we don't like FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, doubt. It's FUD. And, and, you know, socially, the markets react badly to FUD, and political environments react badly to FUD. Um, and families do as well, uh, where we lose our tempers uh, with our loved ones is because we have fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So uh, I always thought comfort would come in the form of knowing. And what I have come to learn just recently, just over the past few years, uh, is that there isn't that certainty. Uh, and those that would try to sell us on the idea of certain anything uh, are doing us a well-intended favor because they don't want us to live in misery. I am learning that uh, living uncomfortably uh, is the most comfortable life of all. And Artie, that's a great answer. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We've really enjoyed it. And uh, sure our listeners will get a lot out of this episode as well so thank, thank you mike thank you josh this has been fun for me too yeah and conquerors thanks a lot for tuning in if you guys enjoyed that episode give us a like share it on facebook tell your friends about it we'll talk to you next week hey conquerors that's it for the episode today hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot if you did make sure to leave a like share us on facebook with your friends we really appreciate all your support and every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes. It really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here, and that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to Molly Ross. Molly Ross is an independent designer who focuses on branding and web design. She wants to connect with you, hear your story, and partner to create something beautiful that will help your business be more successful. 
If you'd like to check out some of Molly's work or connect with her, you can go to mollyross.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.